May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Good morning. If you are a guest in worship this morning, I welcome you on behalf of Christ and on behalf of this extraordinary congregation. I am so honored to be in worship with you, a congregation in the diocese that I deeply admire, and in the presence of your fine clergy, whom I often uh, look to for inspiration, uh, for guidance, and for prayer support. Thank you for welcoming me today. The last month or so, I've been in my preaching and writing around the diocese, exploring a central theme from a variety of perspectives. The theme, living a called life. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann wrote years ago uh, that the greatest heresy of our time is the notion that any of us could live an uncalled life, that is, a life with no reference point beyond the self, no sense of vocation or greater purpose given to us by God. Conversely, the experience of feeling oneself called to something or somewhere is among the most powerful and persuasive of spiritual encounters. It begins, I believe, with this sense, a feeling, a conviction that we're being summoned somehow, either by our life circumstances or an internal driving energy that all spiritual traditions attribute to the voice of God. In the Christian life, Jesus is the one who calls. We hear him call us by name, into relationship with him and to follow him as his disciples, to live by his teaching and to go wherever he leads. And the call can lead us virtually anywhere, deep within ourselves in prayer, boldly out in society to serve the least of God's children. It can be a call to devote the greater portion of our life's energies to the raising of children, the care of a loved one, or to walk courageously through a door to the unknown, leaving for a time the comforts and intense commitments of home. The call can come in the way, by way of joy and the fulfillment of our greatest dreams, and it can come in response to tragedy or heartbreak. But there we are, and the call has come to us. To be called is a uniquely human experience among all of God's creation because of the consciousness we feel and the element of choice that we have, even when it feels as if we have no choice, that circumstances have been thrust upon us, we can, in fact, choose to say no to the summons or refuse to give our hearts to what our bodies are forced to accept. And alternately, we can, we can say yes, to give our consent and wholehearted engagement, even in response to a call we would have given anything not to receive. 
and in so doing, become fully alive. And to feel oneself called in this way is also, among human beings, a universal experience, and therefore a powerful point of contact for us with our non-Christian friends and family. We can support them in their sense of call. We can begin a conversation about what it means to feel oneself beckoned into relationship with Christ. Many of the classic stories from the Bible are, in fact, call stories. Think of Moses' call when God spoke to him from the burning bush, told him that he was the one to go to Pharaoh and liberate God's people from slavery. Or the call of Esther, a Jewish woman who found herself in the king's court in Persia at the precise moment when the Jewish people living in exile were threatened with genocide. Who knows, her uncle Mordecai said to her when she insisted that she could not possibly do what was being asked of her. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for a time such as this. I find it comforting that nearly every biblical character resists the call that comes at first. The prophet Isaiah responds with an acknowledgement of his own sinfulness. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Simon Peter says much the same thing when Jesus calls him. We heard his story in church a few weeks ago. You may remember how when Jesus told Simon Peter to put his nets down for a catch, and there were so many fish that his nets began to break that Simon's response was to fall to his knees and say, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He was certain that if Jesus knew who he really was, Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with him. But in fact, Jesus did know him. He knew all about him. And it was Simon that he wanted. Follow me, Jesus said. From now on, you and I are fishing for people. So coming to terms with that sense of inadequacy, certainly our imperfections in response, all that comes with the territory when living a called life. And Simon Peter is the patron saint of imperfection. The Methodist pastor Adam Hamilton has recently published a book about him entitled Flawed and Faithful Disciple. Simon Peter gives his heart to Jesus, but time and again, he gets things wrong, says the most inappropriate things, and more than once fails spectacularly in his efforts to be faithful. We hear a bit of his fumbling this morning when he was on the mountain with Jesus, when Jesus was illuminated, wanting so much to be helpful, yet characteristically missing the meaning of what was happening before him. Nonetheless, Jesus turns to Simon more than any other disciple, as if to say to all of us, by extension, I do not expect perfection from you. Follow me and embrace the path of your imperfection. What makes Simon's example so compelling to us is his perseverance, a willingness to get up every time he falls, acknowledge his failings, and accept yet again 
Jesus' forgiveness. Remember that he was the one who denied even knowing Jesus three times on the night of Jesus' arrest. How could he ever forgive himself for abandoning his teacher and closest friend? But even then, after the resurrection, Jesus seeks Simon out to make sure that he knows that he is forgiven and still called to be a witness to Jesus' way of love in the world. Now we'll hear that part of Simon Peter's story with Jesus at the end of a season we're poised to begin now in church. For we stand on the threshold of Lent, which begins this Wednesday, and will continue for 40 days until Easter Sunday. It's a season patterned, as you know, on Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, and also his journey down from the mountain of his illumination into Jerusalem and the destiny that awaits him there. But this morning, I invite you to linger a bit with Jesus, Peter, James, and John on the mountaintop where Jesus had gone to pray, and in so doing, call to mind your own mountaintop moments. We often use that phrase, mountaintop, to evoke a feeling of arrival, a clarity of vision, a sense of coherence to our lives that's given to us, often hidden in the valleys of daily existence. But from the mountain, we, we see more clearly. We see our destination, where in the language of faith, God is calling us to go. And these experiences, when they come, are sheer grace. Although hard won, in that it takes some effort to climb a mountain. But once we're there, we're touched by a power and a presence that gives meaning to all that's gone before and guides our way to what will follow. On the mountain of his transfiguration, Jesus was filled with light and surrounded by the love of God. His spiritual ancestors, Moses and Elijah, join him there, and together they speak about what he was about to accomplish, as our translation puts it. Other translations are more specific. It was to be his exodus, hearkening back to the exodus from slavery that Moses led, bringing to all humankind a deeper freedom from sin and death. And his experience on the mountain seemed to negate all the harsh premonitions that Jesus had had about his future and had spoken to about with his disciples time and again, warning them, as he did eight days before. That's the reference, as the passage reads. Eight days before, he had warned them that he was going to go to Jerusalem to die. And now, on the mountain, Simon Peter must have been so relieved. It wasn't going to be that way at all. It was going to be glory. They were going to bask in glory. And if only that were so. But Jesus knew that for all the power of that moment, his destiny waited for him below in Jerusalem, the seat of political and religious power, where all prophets before him went to speak 
and where he most certainly was to die. So what a gift it must have been, that moment for him, and how important a memory it was for those who were there with him. The text tells us at the end that they dared not speak of it at first, and I wondered, when did they talk? I suspect it wasn't until after the resurrection that the three shared with others what they saw on that mountain. Only then did the experience make sense to them. It actually wasn't a lightning bolt from the sky changing course for Jesus. It wasn't, as they thought, an isolated event, but more a resting point in a longer journey of faithfulness to his call. And I wonder if that's not how those moments are for us as well. Years ago, when I was a young priest, about to accept my first call as rector, I spent a weekend with my family at the diocesan camp of the diocese that I was leaving. And the executive director of the camp was a priest I, I knew fairly well. He struck me at the time as really old. I think he was about 55. <laughs> and he was also in transition because he was leaving the camp to accept a position as the director of a residential home for teenagers that were caught up in the juvenile justice system. Clearly not a step up, if you will, on the ecclesiastical ladder of prestige, uh, as vocations go, but as he was talking about it, his face was beaming. And he said something I've never forgotten, one of the best expressions of a mountaintop moment I've ever heard. He said, I have been preparing my entire life for this moment. I have been preparing my entire life for this job. I thought it was the most amazing thing that somebody could say. And I had the sense that he was telling me a lot about his own life, perhaps his own struggles in life, and how overjoyed he was to be called by God for such a time as this. I never saw him again, so I don't know how things turned out. But I would guess that it wasn't any easier coming down from that mountain of clarity than it was climbing up it for him. Mountaintop experiences, wonderful as they are, are generally preceded and followed by a lot of unknowing and small steps of persevering faithfulness. I suppose that's the one thing we know for sure about these revelations. They, they end. And sometimes something happens on the way down from the mountain that calls into question everything about our experience on it. I don't know if that's happened to you. Um, happens to me all the time. Uh, once, uh, once I was uh, struggling with a decision to make of real consequence and I had to make it. And I, um, as part of my struggle, or during that time, I went for a swim at a local rec center. And somewhere in that timeless zone of swimming laps back and forth and praying for clarity, uh, clarity came with this rush of euphoria. I knew in that moment exactly what to do and why. And I remember feeling so relieved to have reached a decision to have been given 
a moment, a given clarity, knowing in my bones that it was right. But I tell you, no sooner had I walked into the locker room and began to dry off that all of that certainty went right out the window. And in fact, the decision I had made, I was half convinced, was precisely wrong. And it took every ounce of courage I had to stay with the decision that came to me in the pool. And I remember offering it up as a, as a touchstone of faith. And it remains for me so. Every time I have a similar experience of insight followed by doubt, I remind myself as best I can to hold steady, not to let the forces of uncertainty blow me off course, and to trust whatever insights God has given me. So it may be for all of us when we come down from mountains, we get, we get hit with reality. Take a deep breath and go on. Life can look pretty much the same on the way down as it did on the way up, and maybe that's the point. If you read on in the text, as Jesus comes down from the mountain and sets his face toward Jerusalem and all that awaits him there, on the journey, he does pretty much what he did before. He heals the sick, feeds the hungry, preaches good news to the poor. He, go, he does his day job, you know? And, and so do we. Those rare, sweet moments of clarity when they come are wonderful. But life is lived in what happens next when we re-enter the world as it is and do our best to live according to the insights we've received. And as the Haitians say, what lies beyond one mountain is another mountain. And how we walk the path between them is the most important, giving thanks for the clarity when it's given to us, but remembering that how we live both before and after is what matters most. So in closing, friends, I simply invite you all to take your scripture insert home with you today, find a quiet place sometime, and ponder the last significant mountaintop experience that you've had, and consider how and where you've traveled since then, and what Jesus might be saying to you today about that journey, and gratitude for you or encouragement, or if you are in need of such an experience as I was in the pool, ask for it in your prayer. Name for yourself the ways you want to feel called by God or that you do feel called and pray for strength and confidence to be faithful. And if, like all of us, you're wondering what the call might be asking now, look around. You are surrounded by a community of faith and your spiritual leaders here are here to guide and to pray with you. We're never meant to walk the path of faithfulness alone. We're never expected to be perfect. And there is love and support all around you, beloved ones of all saints, as you strive to follow the one who calls you by name. And know that one of your bishops is praying for you and giving thanks for your faithfulness. Amen.